Welcome to the American Research Center in Egypt's podcast. Each month we will bring you the latest findings in Egyptological research and host engaging discussions about fascinating topics in Egyptian cultural heritage. Each of our guests are world-renowned scholars in the fields of Egyptology, Islamic, Coptic, and modern Egyptian history, archaeology, and much more. To suggest a topic for this program, please email us at podcast at rc.org. We are also available on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find out more about our other programs and activities, including our virtual lectures, tours, and by visiting our website at rc.org. That's A-R-C-E You can also support our work by joining our mailing list, becoming a member, or donating to support this podcast. This month's podcast focuses on the aftermath of Tutankhamun's reign, featuring Dr. Fatma Ismail, RC's U.S. Director of Outreach and Programs, in conversation with our guest, Dr. Maggie Bryson. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Today we are discussing the aftermath of King Tutankhamun's reign with Dr. Maggie Bryson. She specializes in the history and art of the later New Kingdom and is currently preparing a book on the reign of the general-turned-pharaoh Horebheb. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview with us today at RC Maggie. This is an extra special time that we get with you knowing that your due date is a week from today. Hi, Fatma. It's really good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. As someone who has studied the history of the end of the 18th dynasty, can you tell us about what you think happened after King Tutankhamun died? Uh, was there a struggle for the throne? If anything, it almost seems as though there may have been a struggle for the throne brewing before Tutankhamun had died. It's odd because looking back on it, it seems that there wouldn't have been any way to know um, what the succession would look like after Tutankhamun. But already during his reign, um, powerful men, powerful officials held an amount of influence that was, you know, to some extent unprecedented in Egyptian history. Mm. We have the famous men behind the throne, the three men who were sort of the inner circle of Tutankhamun, mm. the general Horemheb, the advisor I, and the treasurer Maya. And these men held not just real political influence uh, to an extraordinary degree, but they also had a degree of visibility, a degree of prestige that was very unusual for officials in ancient Egypt, where the king, of course, was normally the conceptual center of the universe. They had, for instance, um, the ability to make monuments for themselves. Horemheb famously has this magnificent tomb at Memphis on a scale that's just very rarely seen for a private official up to that point. Um, and their titles, when you talk about the way that these men presented themselves in texts, they claimed to do the kinds of things that a king might do. Maya, the treasurer, for instance, um, was known to claim um, as a kind of epithet the, the term one who pacifies the two lands or one who unites the two lands with his plans. Under normal circumstances, only a king would present himself doing those things. Mm. Um, I showed himself in extremely close contact with Tutankhamun and with, with Ankhesenamun as a queen. Um, he was represented in art, um, very close to the royal couple. 
He oversaw the building uh, during Tutankhamun's lifetime, probably, of his uh, mansion of millions of years, his memorial chapel at Thebes. Um, and Horemheb, of course, um, in addition to the real influence he must have wielded as uh, the leader of the Egyptian army, also seems to have already been positioning himself with a series of titles, with a series of epithets, with uh, presenting himself in a way that he was the king's deputy. He was the king's eyes and ears throughout the land. He was the person uh, that the king could sort of count on to do all of these royal things. And in some ways, there, there is um, an idea that Horemheb may already have been positioning himself as the royal successor, even during the lifetime of Tutankhamun. He held a, a title, Yuri Pat, that is normally a sort of formal title. It means someone who belongs to the hereditary nobility. But when used by itself, it's associated uh, in the New Kingdom with royal sons. And later uh, was a title that was adopted by the person who would become the successor of the reigning king. And it can be and often is translated as uh, hereditary prince or crown prince. So all three of these men held um, an extraordinary degree of power, an extraordinary degree of visibility and influence long before Tutankhamun had died. So when we start looking at the events that unfolded after the death of Tutankhamun, it becomes clearer that this struggle didn't erupt um, necessarily in the, just in the uncertainty that followed the king's death. There seems to have been a very interesting power dynamic in place already. These powerful officials uh, seem to have remarkable amount of influence that was, as you said, unprecedented in Egyptian history. They claimed royal titles, had magnificent tombs. One shouldn't be surprised then that they positioned themselves early on to succeed Tutankhamun, even though he was still a young boy. Exactly. Another vivid example of how these officials claimed unique sort of positions is how the high official eye is depicted in Tutankhamun's tomb. He's represented there performing the opening of the mouse ceremony on the mummy of the king. That's definitely an unusual funerary scene for a royal tomb. It really is. And we know that in ancient Egypt, the person who buried um, a man was typically, who paid for his funeral, who officiated at the funeral, who performed that ritual, was typically the person who was designated, intended to be that person's heir. I, by showing himself uh, performing the opening of the mouth ritual, was really laying claim to a role as Tutankhamun's natural successor, the correct successor. What about Tutankhamun's widow? What do you think happened to her after the death of her husband? Neither her mummy nor her tomb has ever been discovered, and there's no certain evidence about what happened to her. The short answer is we really just don't know. I am curious to know if you think she was the so-called Amarna queen. She's this mysterious figure who wrote to the Hittite king asking for his son's hand in marriage after her husband died. And what would that mean within the wider context of New Kingdom history? What implications would that have for the aftermath of King Tutankhamun's reign? Right. So I'm sure that most of your listeners probably know that what we're talking about here is what's called the Dahamunzu episode. Um, this is an event that, or a series of events, that's recorded in a Hittite text called the Deeds of Shupalaliuma. 
that records the reign of the Hittite king Shupalilima I. In this text, we hear about a queen whose husband had died. The queen is referred to as Dahamunzu, uh, which is a corruption of the Egyptian term Tahemet Nesu, which simply means the king's wife. And the name of her husband does not tell us which king she's referring to. It could have been Akhenaten, it could have been Tutankhamun. The way the Hittites wrote the names of Egyptian kings, it's impossible to tell, unfortunately, exactly which king was meant. So it, the story is really tantalizing. It tells us that the Hittite king got a letter from the queen of Egypt asking for a Hittite prince as a husband. And this is something that would have been completely unheard of from the perspective of the ancient Egyptians. The ancient Egyptians, as you know, were, were famous for never marrying their daughters to foreign princes. Yeah, it's usually the opposite. Right, exactly. A royal, an Egyptian royal son might take a wife from abroad, but an Egyptian royal daughter would not marry a foreigner. And so for the Hittite king to have gotten this letter must have been quite extraordinary. But what it said was, I'm the queen of Egypt, my husband has died, and I have no son. Please send me one of your sons to be my husband so that I don't have to marry my servant. It's, the Hittite king um, is recorded in this, these deeds of Shippolilioma as having reacted incredulously, as having been so surprised that he didn't believe the queen. He said, that doesn't make sense. Surely you have a son. He actually is said to have sent um, a messenger to Egypt to, to verify, check. Right, to fact check this, trust but verify, because it was so extraordinary. So they established that, to the, the Hittites established to their satisfaction that the queen was telling the truth, and they agreed to send a son, a prince by the name of Zananza, to Egypt to marry the queen. And he was murdered en route, never reached Egypt. And then we don't really hear any more about this episode, about what unfolded in the aftermath. So we just don't know who the king was who had died. And it's really tantalizing to wonder which queen this was. And the two mm -hmm. sort of main candidates are Nefertiti, Akhenaten's widow, or Anfasanamun, Tutankhamun's widow. Looking at it on the face of the evidence, to me, Anfasanamun just makes more sense. Mm -hmm. Especially because now, with the you know, all the studies that have been done in recent years of the family of uh, Tutankhamun, there is a growing confidence that Tutankhamun was actually the son of Akhenaten. When Akhenaten died, there would not have been a situation in which there was no royal son. And what's more, when you think about the way that Akhenaten had presented his family, had, had developed his family as... Um, royal personages as political players over the course of his reign. He had daughters, he had surviving daughters when he died, who had been very visible, very prominent um, while he was alive, and who seem perhaps to have been being groomed, if not for sole rule, then to take a real um, significant role in, in the governance of the country, and to serve as the basis for a continuation of Akhenaten's dynasty. So had Tutankhamun not existed as a royal son, even so, there were daughters positioned to take the reins, so to speak, and to kind of shepherd in a continuation of that dynasty. And of course, if we think of, of Nefertiti as the widow who, was writing, who would have been writing to the Hittite king, she herself was tremendously powerful. If we, if we posit that she survived Akhenaten, she may have become king in her own right in his wake. Right? There's this yeah. idea that Nefertiti actually restyled herself as a female king. 
So there are a lot of different ways that Akhenaten's dynasty could have continued, even had not um, there, there been Tutankhamun. And we know, of course, he was there. So it seems kind of out of the question that, that the Dachamunza was Nefertiti. Mm. It would have been um, Akhenaten's daughter Merita, who had been elevated during his reign to chief queen, um, and who seems to have married, you know, the ephemeral Smenkhkare. Smenkhkare could have been the pharaoh who died, leaving Meritaten a widow with no sons. Yeah. But even then, you know, because of the way that, that Akhenaten's daughters even were positioned, it seems unlikely that they would have reached outside of Egypt, outside of this royal family that had been so carefully cultivated and, and sort of built up um, for a husband. Ankhesenamun, on the other hand, really would have been in a position, um, we know that she and Tutankhamun didn't have surviving children. And at the time when Tutankhamun died, there were powerful servants ready to step into the picture as we just talked about. Again, we don't know that what they were positioning themselves for was really to take the throne when Tutankhamun died. In theory, no one could have known that he was going to die so young without an heir. And it seems un sort of unreasonable to think that, that this is part of some grand plot. We just don't have any reason to believe that. But at the same time, there were these powerful men, any one of whom could have been waiting in the wings to step in and marry Ankhesenamun when Tutankhamun died. So I think just on the face of it, it seems most likely that Ankhesenamun was the Dechamunzu. The problem is, um, at least recently, there's been a suggestion that based on the chronology, it must have been Akhenaten who had died, and either his widow Nefertiti or his daughter Meridaten, um, and perhaps in the wake of, of Smithkare's death, um, who wrote to the Hittites asking for a son. And the idea is that we don't really know how long Shupalilioma I lived. We know that he was king during the of the Hittites during the reign of Akhenaten. We don't know for sure that he survived into the reign of Tutankhamun. And there's some very complicated arguments on the basis of, of synchronisms with you know, Hittite political events and Egyptian political events that I just don't think really are susceptible to solution. I don't think you can really solve that puzzle based on the information we have. So my feeling is that it's Ankhesenamun out of all the candidates that have been proposed by historians. Um, but there's, unfortunately, it's one of those things that for the time being at least does remain a mystery. To add to this puzzle, Percy Newberry mentioned that he saw a signet ring with the name of I and Anthesanamen. This signet ring hasn't been found, unfortunately, but if it did exist, then perhaps Anthesanamen ended up marrying one of her servants. Absolutely. I, I would absolutely um, point to that as, um, you know, a reason to think that, that she was the Dachamunzu. Mm. Uh, the ring doesn't necessarily mean that she married I, and I always presented the wife that he had before he became king as his queen. Uh, her name was T. But he was definitely closely associated with Ankhesenamun. One of his sort of epithets, these terms that, that Egyptian officials would take to, to sort of describe what it was that they did, what made them special, even if they weren't really official job titles, mm -hmm. was the one who extends the hand of the god which is a reference to um, the role of the queen in the religion of ancient Egypt. It seems that I was very close to Ankhesenamun in some way. He was represented 
with her, for instance, in this ring that has their two cartouches together um, in some objects from the tomb of Tutankhamun. So this association, the fact that I was very close um, to the royal couple, even when Tutankhamun was alive, and that he might have been sort of, you can kind of picture him in the background, sort of waiting to step in um, using our, our imaginations, uh, makes it very tempting to, to go with that reconstruction. And again, that's the kind of thing that we do with history, right? We read in these motivations, we read in character, um, even when it's not necessarily explicit in the evidence that we have. Um, but I think in this case, you know, this fact, right, that when Tutankhamun died, there were so many mm. possibilities. There were powerful servants. Yeah, yeah, definitely. One party or another, you know, so Ankhasanamun might have had allies at court that, that wanted for some reason to prevent one or the other of these servants from taking the throne. You are listening to the official podcast of the American Research Center in Egypt. More information about our operations and programs can be found at rc.org. And if you would like to support the RC podcast, please visit arce.org slash podcast. We will now go back to our episode with Dr. Maggie Bryson. It's also important to think about Egypt's relationship with the Hittites. It's hard to believe that at any time in Egypt, there were no Egyptian candidate for the throne. There must have been a royal relative somewhere, a nephew, a previous king, a brother, a nobleman who might have been considered an appropriate candidate for marriage to an Egyptian princess, or might have stepped into the royal role on their own, the way Horemhab eventually did, for example. And the question of why they would have wanted to bring in a Hittite prince um, when such a thing would have been so far outside the norm is uh, an interesting question. It really is. Did your study of Horemheb reveal much about Egypt's foreign relations with the Hittites and other foreign countries? Tutankhamun seems to have inherited a complicated situation at the borders. According to Amarna letters, for example, Egypt lost some of its influence over cities in Syria and Palestine during the reign of his father. Under Tutankhamun, it's possible that there was an Egyptian military expedition into Syria. We think in particular that the city-state of Kadesh, which is famous from the later account of Ramses II's attempts to keep the city under Egyptian control, was a point of contention between Egypt and the Hittites under Tutankhamun. We don't know for sure whether there was actual military activity in Tutankhamun's reign. We have um, mention in the Hittite records of Shupalilium of the First that the Egyptians were active militarily in the region, but it's very difficult to date those records. It's not clear what the correspondence between the Hittite chronology and the Egyptian chronology was, so we don't know in every instance whether something that's mentioned in the Hittite annals happened under Akhenaten or Tutankhamun, for instance. But Tutankhamun is definitely shown in military contexts, in his own monuments and in artwork from his reign. So very famously, there are objects like, a, like this one particularly beautiful box from his tomb that show him in a military garb. There are also military scenes from Tutankhamun's mansion of millions of years at Karnak. Ray Johnson 
was able to reconstruct to some degree these scenes and recognize their significance. They're, a lot of them are quite unique and they show very unusually sort of vivid images of military activity under Tutankhamun. Of course, um, just because the king was shown in battle, it doesn't necessarily mean that he participated in any military activity. This could be just a symbolic representation of an ideal king who's supposed to maintain order against the enemies. And in fact, under Tutankhamun, we have reason to think that it would more likely have actually been Horemheb, who, if there was military activity in the period in Syria, uh, would have been in charge of the troops. It would have been Horemheb who was actually in the field. Horemheb's tomb at Saqqara shows images of captives, including Asiatic captives, that is, captives from Syria, and including Hittites, um, being brought before Horemheb and petitioning for peace. And it may be that Horemheb played a really important role in whatever was happening with respect to Egypt's foreign relations and military activities during this period. Do you really believe that by the end of King uh, Tutankhamun's reign, Egypt returned to the standard traditions of at least the early New Kingdom in terms of religion and politics? We know at least uh, in the arts, uh, Amarna style still persisted a little. Did other things carry over from the time of so-called Hebraic King Akhenaten as well? There are a lot of ways in which you could say that Akhenaten's reign really changed everything. Um, asking if anything continued, um, it would probably be faster to ask what didn't, or what wasn't changed at least um, by the reign of, of Akhenaten. The Egyptians who came after, the kings, the elites, who came after the Amarna period would probably want you to think that they were returning to some ideal pre-Amarna past where Akhenaten had never existed. But it was really impossible for them to go back. And you can see this in a lot of ways. As you say, the artistic styles of the Amarna period are still visible you know, into the reign of Seti I. And some of that likely had to do with the need to retrain artists to um, develop conventions that were acceptable and to train people to produce art because, you know, art isn't just something that you can magically alter overnight um, the way the Egyptians created it. Uh, it would have required a certain amount of, of reconfiguring how people thought about art and made art. So, of course, you know, a lot of these conventions, particularly in how the human body was depicted, persisted. But there were other things um, as well. For instance, the Amarna religion didn't just um, vanish into nothing overnight. It didn't come from nothing either. It was part of a long-standing trend um, of increasing emphasis on the sun god over the course of the New Kingdom. So Akhenaten didn't entirely revolutionize Egyptian religion in the sense that there was something, there was a precedent for his elevation of the sun god. And so when he died, even as the Egyptians reacted against the particular way that he had elevated the sun god above all other gods and had directed resources away from the cults of the other gods, they didn't immediately, the Aten didn't lose its place as a member of the Egyptian pantheon in the sense that it was still a form of the sun god. And in fact, there was a temple to the Aten at Memphis that seems to have been active into the reign of Seti I. So there, in a lot of ways, it was not an overnight shift. 
at least outside of Thebes. At Thebes, of course, which is where we have modern day Luxor, which is where we have Karnak Temple, we have all of these famous private tombs, we have the Valley of the Kings. At Thebes is where you can see this reaction, this overwhelming rejection of Akhenaten and his religion most clearly because this was the stronghold of the god Amun. Um, but in other parts of Egypt, it seems as though there may have been a slightly more gradual transition, at least with respect to the, the religion of uh, Akhenaten. Um, and you also have to think that it wasn't just um, things that persisted from Amarna that we have to think about. Akhenaten's reign changed Egypt in other ways. It gave um, rise to new conventions and traditions. So for instance, after the Amarna period, we start to see non-royal people, so people other than the king, uh, depicted on the walls of their tomb chapels, directly interacting with the gods. Mm. Um, before Akhenaten, there would have been uh, a need to have the king sort of in place uh, between a private individual and the gods to act as a kind of intermediary. People were shown interacting with the king, doing things for him, but not with the gods directly. It's possible that, that Akhenaten's fall, that the reaction against him after his death damaged the prestige of the royal institution altogether to the extent that now people um, had sort of lost that barrier to interacting directly with the gods. So the Amarna period really did change everything. There was no going back to some pure time before Akhenaten. And it's interesting because we think about this a lot in religious terms. Akhenaten is so famous for being the so-called first monotheist, regardless of whether he chose to consider his religion monotheistic or not. Um, one of the things that interests us the most is what he did in terms of religion and how his choice to focus on this one God resonates so strongly with us given our experience of monotheism. But there was a lot more going on. There were a lot of a lot more reasons for people to react against or agree with the Akhenatans at the time. In ancient Egypt, as you know, there were there wasn't a divide between religion and politics or religion and the economy. People's livelihood depended on religious activities. That's so true, and that's so critical to consider when you think about this period and its events. And it's interesting to think, um, as we noted, right, there was this development from early in the New Kingdom of an increasing emphasis on the sun god. That didn't go away, uh, just because the cult of the Aten, by and large, um, lost the prestige. There was a reaction against this elevation of the Aten, and you don't have this cult of the Aten after Akhenaten. But the Aten was very closely identified with the god Reherakti. So the falcon form of the solar god, mm. and, and, you know, as Horus. And it's interesting that in the post-Amarna period, so the 20 years or so after the death of Akhenaten, into the early reign of Ramses II, you start seeing a lot of um, officials, or you continue to see a lot of, of, of officials associate themselves with Reherakti, that, that god, not the Aten, but Reherakti, and it couldn't have escaped anyone that Reherakti was a form of the Aten, was closely associated with the Aten. Horemheb is a fascinating character. He was obviously a great military man and a sagacious diplomat. How much do we know about who succeeded him? The story of Horemheb's successor is an interesting one. 
Horemheb was succeeded not by a relative, but by a fellow military man who had risen to high office much the same way that Horemheb himself did. This man was Paramesu, Horemheb's vizier, and he held some of the same titles that Horemheb himself had held, including king's deputy and Yiri Pot, which as we've said, can be taken to mean crown prince. He was almost certainly being positioned as the heir during Horemheb's lifetime. The most likely reason that Horemheb did this, of course, is that he didn't have any sons, or at least none that survived him. But it would have been a very strategic decision, no matter what the circumstances had been. Paramesu, who took the throne as Ramses I, was not only an able military officer and administrator, but also had a very talented son, who would go on to become Seti I. So the succession was secured beyond just one generation. Paramesu, in effect, was a package deal. Interestingly, he may have been related by marriage to the family of Queen T. This is not certain, it's just something that there are hints of, but in this case, he would have combined the military acumen that he needed to deal with the complicated situations on Egypt's northern border with the legitimacy that would have been conferred by a connection to the very powerful clan of Queen T from Ahmim. Horemheb is usually thought of as the king who brought traditions back to its heights of glory and to have finally restored it after Akhenaten did so much to undermine the authority of traditional cults. He's also thought of as this great sort of triumphant champion of the god Amun, the traditional Theban god of kingship. Is that all there to it? Do you agree with this perspective? Actually, if you look closely, I think you'll find that there's a lot more to it than that. And in fact, that depiction of Horemheb as the triumphant restorer of order after the Amarna period and as the champion of the god Amun is not really an accurate reflection, I think, of what was going on at the time. First of all, it's important to recognize that what we would think of as religious concerns were not the most important thing at stake here. If that were the case, then Tutankhamun would have been the one who was remembered as the champion of Amun. It was under him, for instance, that the high priesthood of Amun at Thebes was restored. We have the tomb of a very a beautiful and large tomb of an important high priest of Amun from Tutankhamun's reign. And the process of the restoration of the cult of Amun and the refurbishment of temp and reopening of temples had already begun under him. So if it were a religious matter, Horemheb would not be the first person you think of. If you look at Horemheb's monuments, he's not actually shown in connection with Amun that much or described as um, in connection with Amun that much outside of Thebes, where you would expect him to be making reference to Amun all the time anyway. He was much more closely associated with, of course, his, his patron god, if you will, Horus, outside of Thebes. So there are um, some things wrong with the traditional account in that regard. The other thing to bear in mind is that order was not necessarily fully restored under Horemheb. In fact, there are a lot of indications that conflict continued well into his reign, perhaps through almost to the very end. For instance, Horemheb's monuments are almost all usurpations. That is, they were, they're almost all instances in which Horemheb erased the name of an earlier king, particularly I, and replaced it with his own, or where he found existing incomplete construction and finished it, like in the case of the 10th pylon at Karnak. His tomb at Thebes is unfinished. There really just isn't that much original 
architecture from the reign of Horemheb. And there's not even that much original artwork when you think about it. Most of the sculptures that we have of Horemheb are sculptures of Tutankhamun that were repurposed. And it's hard even to reconstruct um, a sort of idea of what we should think of Horemheb as looking like. Most Egyptian kings have a kind of official portrait, but we really don't know what Horemheb's official portrait should be thought of as. Horemheb may or may not have had really good control of all of Egypt throughout his reign. His monuments at Thebes fall off after the early part of his reign. We have a dated notation about him to, that's, that's dated to year eight. But after that, we don't have any more year dates of his reign in the Theban region. And until we find uh, wine jars from year 14 in his Theban tomb, there are the incomplete architectural record of his reign also indicates that he may not have been as active in building as you would have expected a king who ruled in a peaceful, consolidated way over the course of at least 14 years. Confl ongoing conflict of a political nature is very compatible with the record that we see under Horemheb. And so I think that to portray him as this triumphant restorer and as the champion of Amun is, if anything, almost the opposite of the truth. In fact, Horemheb's greatest contribution to what we might think of as the restoration of order may have been to plan wisely for his succession, to put Paramesu in place as his successor, knowing that he would have secured the kingship for at least one generation or more to come. Why did the ancient Egyptian kinglists ignore the whole line of the Amarna kings then uh, before Horemheb, including Tutankhamun and I? That's actually an interesting question. If the reason was primarily religious, and remember the kinglists we're talking about appeared in a temple context, then you might think that Tutankhamun could have been included, because it's really under him that the cults of Amun and the other gods were fully brought back to life, so to speak. But he's skipped over along with the other Amarna kings. It's possible that in spite of the fact that he renounced Dakinatan's heresy, Tutankhamun was still close, too close to him for comfort. But then again, the answer may have had as much to do with the politics of succession as anything. Even though he was the son and heir of Akhenaten, he was still a legitimate king in one important sense as a direct descendant of Amenhotep III. Horemheb and his successors could have preferred not to have a reminder of the way the royal lineage changed after Tutankhamun. And so Horemheb being the, the jumping off point for everything that came after the Amarna heresy, probably tied up in a lot of different things, political, dynastic, um, as well as religious and conceptual. And so it's a really fascinating period with a lot of complexity. And there's a lot more work to be done to sort of tease out all these different threads. Thank you for your insights today, Maggie, and good luck with your book in Family Edition. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. And I'd like to send my best wishes to all my fellow RC members. Thank you for listening to this episode of the RC Podcast, and many thanks to Dr. Maggie Bryson for sharing her expertise. Please join us for next month's podcast, where we will be talking about the Al-Amasili project in Rosetta with our guest, Dr. Mohammed Kanali. Please visit our website at www.rc.org for more information or contact us at podcast at rc.org. Again, we are also available on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.